Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 400 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab, The Astronauts, Part 5. William Pogue, and Paul Weitz. With this episode, we will finish the biographies of the nine Skylab astronauts. So let's begin with William Pogue. Our space lab itself, as it uh, is presently conceived, will provide us with a, a capability which grows on Skylab, expands on Skylab, and provides us with an enormous capability to conduct research in space. Bill Pogue was fascinated by airplanes in his youth. But, similar to Jack Lausma, Bill had plans for his life that did not include being a pilot. Fate, however, had other plans, and Pogue ended up pursuing his childhood fascination. William Reed Pogue was born on January 23, 1930 in Oakma, Oklahoma. His father was Alex Wallace Pogue and mother was Margaret McDowell Pogue. And he is of the Choctaw ancestry. William had four siblings, two sisters and two brothers. Pogue attended Lake Elementary School and Sand Springs High School in Sand Springs, Oklahoma, completing his high school education in 1947. He participated in Boy Scouts of America, earning the rank of second class. Pogue attended Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma, graduating with a Bachelor of Science degree in education in 1951. Pogue planned during high school and college to be a high school math or physics teacher, following in his father's school teacher's footprints. But Pogue was attracted to flying from an early age. He first flew an airplane while in high school. After the Korean War broke out, though, Pogue decided it looked like he was going to be drafted and he decided to go ahead and enlist in the Air Force in 1951. He underwent the Aviation Cadet Training Program in 1952, 
Then he was commissioned into the U.S. Air Force as a second lieutenant. Pogue was sent to Korea, where he was a fighter-bomber pilot. In the six weeks before the armistice, he flew a total of 43 missions, bombing trains and providing air support for troops. An assignment to leave Korea to serve as a gunnery instructor at Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix, Arizona, proved to be quite fortuitous when, after two years there, he was asked to join a recently formed group at the base. The group was the now-famous Thunderbirds Air Demonstration Unit. Bill served with the Thunderbirds as an aerobatics pilot from 1955 to 1957. When he left the Thunderbirds, Pogue was given his choice of assignment, and he asked to be allowed to earn his master's degree. He was then reassigned to Oklahoma State University, where he earned his master's in mathematics in 1960. From 1960 to 1963, Bill served in the mathematics department as an assistant professor at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Then, in 1962, Pogue found that astronaut applications were available. He applied and was rejected due to lack of pilot experience. So, about halfway through his five-year tour of duty as a mathematics professor at the Air Force Academy, Bill successfully petitioned to be allowed to work towards a goal of becoming an astronaut. Pogue was assigned to the British Ministry of Aviation under an exchange program between the U.S. Air Force and the Royal Air Force, and he graduated from the Empire Test Pilot School in Farnborough, England. Then, in 1965, after completing his training, Bill was transferred to Edwards Air Force Base, where he was an instructor at the U.S. Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School. But before he even moved to Edwards, Bill learned that NASA was selecting a new group of astronauts, and from his first day at Edwards, he was already working to leave to join NASA. By this time, Pogue had earned the rank of Air Force Major and had piloted more than 50 types and models of American and British aircraft and was qualified as a civilian flight instructor as well. In April 1966, Pogue was one of the 19 astronauts selected by NASA in Group 5 of the Apollo program. He served as a member of the support crews for the Apollo 7, Apollo 11, 13, and Apollo 14 missions. He replaced Ed Givens, who died in a car accident, as capsule communicator for Apollo 7. Crew members were not officially assigned to the canceled Apollo missions 18 through 20, but if normal crew rotation had been followed, Pogue would have been assigned as command module pilot 
for the Apollo 19 mission. Pogue was the pilot of Skylab 4. In an interview conducted in 1985, Pogue describes his launch experience on the Saturn 1B. It's just super. Some of the ones that pop to my mind that you cover in the book. And that is the launch. I mean, as I said, it is so exciting to watch a launch. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, you get the shivers when you're there, and even on television it's exciting. How do you describe what it is like when they, those rocket boosters go and you start to go? Uh, <clears throat> to put it into words, it's fairly difficult, but someone said it's a stimuli intense period, which is uh, uh, sort of an understatement. But the, uh, <laughs> what, stimuli <laughs> they, well, they count, intense period? Right. I love it. Uh, they count down, and of course you're expecting it, and uh, then the noise and the vibration, in the case of the shuttle, which I haven't been in, it, it goes through an oscillation that's pretty weird. But hmm. uh, you, you're just uh, surrounded by all the vibration and noise and all this So you really can hear all of that in there? Yes. Well, you can't. It isn't as loud as it is outside, but the, the structure transmits a lot of the noise, and it's sometimes difficult to uh, hear the other astronauts on the comm loop. You talk in the book about how you get kind of puffy-faced and so forth. Why is that, and how surprised were you by it? Uh, I was surprised because my facial features looked a lot different, but wh the reason it happens is the same reason that your face would get puffy if someone uh, held you by your heels upside down. There's a gradual uh, progression or migration of t uh, tissue fluids and blood toward the head, and so this causes edema or swelling in the tissues uh, in your face. What about the sunrises? How many, what are there, 16? 16 a day. Per 16 sunrises okay. and sunsets a day. For 24-hour period. 24-hour period. Right. How how do you describe what that experience is like? Well, uh, I tried to describe it to my daughter once on a radio loop, and she said, well, why don't you take some pictures, which I did, because... Oh, here are some of them. Yeah. Go, what go happens ahead. is that the, uh, as the sun just comes up, as you're seeing here, uh, you can't see it right uh, as well here, but there are several bands along the horizon, and uh, just before the sun comes up, there's a gold bloom that spreads across the entire length of the horizon, and it's really beautiful. It must be incredible. Yes. Would you like to go again? Yes, I would, but I don't think I'm going to have the chance. Skylab 4 was the third and final crewed visit to the Skylab Orbital Workshop. The mission lasted from November 16, 1973 to February 8, 1974, for a total of 84 days, 1 hour, and 15 minutes. It was the longest crewed flight to that date. It held the record for the longest space flight until 1978, when the crew of Soviet ship Salyut 6 spent 140 days at the space station. Pogue was accompanied on the 34.5 million miles flight by Commander Gerald Carr and science pilot Edward Gibson. As a crew, they completed 56 experiments, 26 science demonstrations, 15 subsystem detailed objectives, and 13 student investigations across 1,214 revolutions of the Earth. Here is a clip of Pogue performing a science demonstration. Hi, I'm uh, the PLT on Skylab. What we would like to do today is show you the effect of accelerations on objects in space. 
We have our command module docked at the front of this workshop. This is our transportation system up to the workshop, Skylab, and back down to Earth, which we hope to use in a few weeks to come home. Uh, Commander Jerry Carr is in the command module now, and he's preparing in about uh, one minute to perform a thrusting maneuver with four small jets in the command module. They're 100-pound thrust jets, and uh, they are used to make very small and precise adjustments to the uh, orbit of Skylab, and this is to preserve the ground track repetition capability. Okay, I'm going to coordinate now with the crew here and see just exactly how far away from the burn we are. And, of course, when the spacecraft moves, these balls that are floating free in space will not move due to that thrust, but they will appear to move relative to the spacecraft because the spacecraft is moving. Five seconds to go. Okay, now you see the ball starting to move up, and I'm going to move them back down again. They should move up again. Okay, that's it. All right, the thrusting maneuver is over right now. I should be able to take the balls and float them freely and steadily in space again. And you see it is. They are floating. Okay, that was only 10-second demonstration, but it does show you uh, the effect of even a very, very small acceleration in settling dust, say, in a spacecraft, which is uh, no small problem. It would be nice to uh, manage particulates, that is, floating particles and objects in, in, in the spacecraft by having some form of artificial gravity. Well, of course, we can't thrust all the time, but we can do the, uh, the next best thing. We could uh, rotate the entire spacecraft. Now, rotations do cause some physiological disturbances in the inner ear and can cause uh, symptoms. But if the, if the planning is proper, and we hope that we can obtain this in the future spacecraft, then we could induce a form of artificial gravity which would cause the, uh, would give us the same effect that we, as we have on the Earth. So, once again, we have the balls floating freely in space in true weightlessness. And um, the effect of the thrusting maneuver was very short, but I think it was very dramatic, and you could see the all of the balls rise at the same time. So that's the end of our demonstration for artificial gravity and the PLT from Skylab signing off. The Skylab 4 crew also acquired extensive Earth Resources Observations data using Skylab's Earth Resources Experiment Package Camera, and sensor array, and logged 338 hours of operations of the Apollo telescope mount that made extensive observation of the sun's processes. Pogue and Carr actually viewed a comet transiting the sky during an extravehicular activity. Pogue logged 13 hours and 34 minutes in two EVAs outside the orbital workshop. The crew returned safely to Earth on February 8, 1974. On September 1, 1975, Pogue retired from the U.S. Air Force as a colonel, and he also retired from NASA. He became vice president of High Flight Foundation. In total... Pogue logged 7,200 hours of flight time, including 4,200 hours in jet aircraft and 2,000 hours 
in spaceflight during his career. After that, William Pogue was self-employed as an aerospace consultant and producer of general interest videos about spaceflight. In 1985, Pogue wrote a book called How Do You Go to the Bathroom in Space? Answering 187 Common Questions He Received About Spaceflight. In 1992, he co-wrote The Tricon Deception, a science fiction novel with Ben Bova. Pogue also became a consultant for aircraft manufacturers, including Boeing and Martin Marietta, helping to create space station technology. Pogue continuously presented lectures over a 40-year career, working at more than 500 schools and 100 civic clubs. In his personal life, William Pogue married three times, His first marriage was in 1952 to Helen Juanita Dittmer, with whom he had three children. The couple later divorced, and he married Jean Ann Bayard in 1979, and the marriage lasted until Bayard's death in 2009. Pogue's last marriage was to Tina, whom he wed in 2012. During the night of March 3, 2014, at the age of 84, Pogue died from natural causes at his home in Cocoa Beach, Florida. He was survived by his third wife, Tina, three children from his first marriage, and four stepsons from his second marriage. His ashes were sent into Earth orbit using Celestis, a Memorial Rocket Service launch on a Falcon Heavy rocket on June 25, 2019. A plaque commemorating his life was erected at Sands Springs, Oklahoma. Pogue and his Skylab 4 crew members received many awards. Pogue won the Johnson Space Center Superior Achievement Award in 1970. Three Skylab crews, including Pogues, were awarded the 1973 Robert J. Collier Trophy. In 1974, President Nixon presented the Skylab 4 crew with the NASA Distinguished Service Medal, and the Federation Aeronautic International awarded the crew the Komarov Diploma that year. Pogue was among nine Skylab astronauts who were presented with the City of Chicago Gold Medal in 1974 after a parade with 150,000 spectators. The American Astronautical Society's 1975 Flight Achievement Award was given to the crew, who also won the AIAA's Haley Astronautical Award in 1975. Pogue was awarded an honorary doctorate of science from Oklahoma Baptist University in 1974. Pogue received the City of New York Gold Medal and the General Thomas D. White U.S. Air Force Space Trophy for the same year. Pogue was inducted into three halls of fame. He was inducted into the Five Civilized Tribes Hall of Fame in 1975 
and was one of five Oklahoman astronauts inducted into the Oklahoma Aviation and Space Hall of Fame in 1980. Poe was one of 24 Apollo astronauts who were inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. As a member of the United States Air Force Thunderbirds, he won the Air Medal, Air Force Commendation Medal, the National Defense Service Medal, and an Air Force Outstanding Unit Award. All right, let's move on to our final Skylab astronaut, Paul Weitz. I think it's a natural thing to sell. Why explore space? And some people have, uh, different people have different views on this. Personally, they're thinking a part of human nature is to reach out and explore. Unlike Lausma and Pogue, Paul Weitz did always want to be a pilot. Paul Joseph Weitz was born in Erie, Pennsylvania on July 25, 1932, after attending McKinley Elementary School. He graduated from Harbor Creek High School in Harbor Creek, Pennsylvania in 1949 as valedictorian. The high school stadium would eventually be named after him. But since his early years, Paul wanted to be a pilot for the Navy. His father was a chief petty officer in the Navy and during World War II was in the Battle of Midway and the Battle of the Coral Sea. That made a deep impression on Whites and by the time he was 11, he had decided he was going to be a naval aviator. With that goal in mind, he attended Penn State on a Navy ROTC scholarship, completing his time there with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering in 1954. While attending Penn State, he was a member of the Alpha Upsilon chapter of Beta Theta Pi. After graduation, the Navy commissioned Paul as an ensign. One of his instructors there advised Whites that if he wanted to make the Navy a career, he should begin by going to sea. So Paul spent a year and a half on a destroyer before going to flight training. Whites was awarded his aviator wings in September 1956. From there... He spent four years with a squadron in Jacksonville, Florida, where he met Alan Bean. The next few years of White's life were not necessarily as he would have planned them. After initially being turned down for test pilot school, he was accepted for the next class, but not until he had already been ordered across the country for an air development squadron. Since the Navy had just moved him from one coast to the other, they refused to move him back for test pilot school. At last, after two years, he received unsolicited orders to attend the Naval Postgraduate School where he was in the same group as Jack Lausma and Ron Evans who, of course, went on to be the command module pilot for the Apollo 17 mission. Further complicating the situation, 
Whites found himself allowed only two years at a school where a master's degree was a three-year program. With the aid of some sympathetic professors, he was able to earn his master's in aeronautical engineering in the two years he was allotted. The next year, he served a combat tour in Vietnam. While in the Western Pacific, he got a message from the Bureau of Naval Personnel asking if he would like to apply to be an astronaut. Though Whites had never given the matter any thought before, he decided that, yes, he would like to be an astronaut. Whites wound up logging more than 7,700 hours flying time, 6,400 hours in jet aircraft. In April of 1966, Weiss was selected by NASA for Astronaut Group 5. If NASA followed typical crew rotations, Weiss may have been assigned as the command module pilot for the canceled Apollo 20 mission. But that was not to happen. Instead, he was given another assignment. White served as pilot on the crew of Skylab 2, which launched on May 25th and splashed down on June 22, 1973. Skylab 2 was the first crewed Skylab mission. The mission lasted for 28 days, a record at that time. Whites and his two crewmates, Pete Conrad and Joseph Kerwin, performed extensive and unprecedented repairs to serious damage that Skylab sustained during its uncrewed launch, salvaging the entire Skylab mission. Whites logged two hours and 11 minutes of EVA during the mission. Whites was the crewman chiefly responsible for conducting the Earth resource experiments on the mission. Here he is explaining this and other experiments he will be responsible for. The Earth Resources Experiments Package is a group of five sensors which we're going to uh, use to look at the Earth to gather data. With these five sensors, 15 times during our flight, with that, the uh, data is collected on board on magnetic tape, is brought back, and uh, later reduced and analyzed here on Earth. Through it, we hope to uh, a myriad of things that we're going to find out. First off, we're going to find out how does the package perform as a package. In other words, did we pick the right mix of experiments with which to do the job? Now, uh, for example, some of the things are the states of health of foliage of different types, whether they be crops, trees, grasslands, pasture, what have you. Hopefully, can we uh, determine the depth of snow in a given region? Can we determine the, how fast the snow is melting at the rate of melt runoff, such that uh, downstream stations can be advised of when to open the gates on dams to predict how much water is coming down to help minimize flooding? Can we trace uh, thermal currents in the ocean or the Gulf of Mexico? Can we even, uh, can we spot schools of fish? Can we determine where underwater, excuse me, underground sources of water are located and uh, many, many other really practical applications. Some eight solar telescopes on Skylab will be aimed toward the sun, a vantage point that no one has ever had before. 
With solar power already being discussed as a possible means of easing our energy crisis, the solar physics studies take on added meaning and importance. We're going to be able to, to look at the sun in wavelengths that uh, were impossible to see before because the atmosphere filtered these out. And from this, we'll have a better understanding of the phenomena that are presently going on on the sun's surface, how it affects our lives on Earth now, how it's uh, affected our evolution and our history, and perhaps how we can better cope with changes that are coming up in the future. Yes, the uh, primary experiment which we're doing is the, called the Metals Processing Facility, in which we're going to... Uh, it's a sphere which can be sealed off from the interior of the spacecraft and uh, evacuated, that is, uh, pull a vacuum on it by exposing it uh, out to space, outside the spacecraft. And uh, in it, we're going to do some welding. We're going to uh, melt some uh, metal samples to see if we can form some ball bearings practically in a weightless environment. And in essence, it's a determination of what are some of the phenomena that occur in a manufacturing process in a weightless environment, and can they be used to a man's benefit? After he returned from Skylab, there was some small concern on how Weitz responded to the spinning chair experiment. Here's how Paul recalled his experience. Now, I didn't experience much of the vertigo. And I think this is just flat a, a difference in reaction to, uh, to the post-flight stresses imposed by that other big vector of gravity, that, that acceleration vector that we'd been living without for four weeks. I did have some dizziness, uh, however, I want to point out that that was present only during, just as I had on the rotating litter chair during flight, is that I, it came and went. I had some sensations of vertigo. I had some dizziness in flight on the chair, however, it was only while I was exciting, uh, uh, stimulating my inner ear by moving my head. Aboard ship, if I move my head down and to the right, which is a pretty good kick after you've been uh, weightless or in bed for four weeks, I'd have a dizziness. As soon as the head motion stopped, the dizziness went away. In 1976, Weitz retired from NASA and went back to the Navy. But he returned to NASA to fly the maiden space flight of the Challenger at over... 50 years old. Weitz was spacecraft commander on the crew of STS-6, which launched from Kennedy Space Center, Florida, on April 4, 1983. This was the maiden voyage of the Orbiter Challenger. During the mission, the crew conducted numerous experiments in material processing, recorded lightning activities, deployed a tracking data relay satellite, conducted extravehicular activity while testing a variety of support systems and equipment in preparation for future spacewalks, and also carried three private-based small experiments. Mission duration was 120 hours before Challenger landed on a concrete runway at Edwards Air Force Base, California, on April 9, 1983. With the completion of this flight, Weitz logged a total of 793 hours in space. Weitz was Deputy Director of the Johnson Space Center when he retired from NASA in May of 1994. In his personal life, Weitz married the former 
Susan M. Berry of Harbor Creek, Pennsylvania. They had two children, Matthew and Cynthia. Hunting and fishing were among his hobbies. After retiring, Whites lived in Arizona until his death on October 22, 2017, from Melodis Plastics Syndrome at the age of 85. He was a fellow in the American Astronautical Society and a Master Mason at the Lawrence Lodge 708 in Erie, Pennsylvania. He was awarded the Navy Astronaut Wings, the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, five Air Medals, a Navy Commendation Medal for Combat Flights in Vietnam, NASA Distinguished Service Medal, NASA Space Flight Medal, Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce Kitty Hawk Award in 1973, Pennsylvania State University Alumni Association's Distinguished Alumni Award. He was named a Pennsylvania State University Alumni Fellow in 1974, the AIAA Haley Astronautics Award for 1974, the Federation Aeronautic International's Komarov Diploma for 1973, 1974 Harmon International Aviation Trophy for astronauts in 1975, the 1984 Harmon International Award, the Robert J. Collier Trophy, the Goddard Memorial Trophy, and he was one of the 24 Apollo astronauts who were inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. These nine men made up the crews of the three Skylab missions. Pete Conrad and Al Bean, the two veteran astronauts, became the commanders of the first two Skylab crews. Conrad was joined by pilot Paul Weitz and science pilot Joe Kerwin. Bean's crew consisted of himself, pilot Jack Lausma, and science pilot Owen Garriott. Rookie Jerry Carr was assigned as the commander for the third crew, joined by pilot Bill Pogue and science pilot Ed Gibson. One veteran and five rookies made up the backup crews for the three Skylab missions. Rusty Swigert, the lunar module pilot for the Earth Orbit Apollo 9 mission, was the commander of the backup crew for the first mission, joined by Bruce McCandless and science pilot Story Musgrave. Commander Vance Brand, pilot Don Lind, and science pilot Bill Lenore served as the backup crew for both the second and third Skylab missions. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 400 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Skylab, the Astronauts, Part 5, William Pogue and Paul Weitz. 
with a huge sigh of relief, I have completed episode 400. Now that's a lot of episodes. I am so thankful that Mrs. SRH and I have reached 400. I never thought it would go so far, and I would spend so much of my life doing this podcast. I want to thank the donors who supported me for so long. The podcast would not have made it without you. And I want to thank those who promoted the podcast through Twitter, Facebook, or any other means. And I want to thank the listeners for sticking around with me for all these years. Now, I want to invite everyone to the 400th episode celebration on YouTube coming on Friday, October 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a live Q&A and, of course, the Tang Ceremony. If you can't make it at that time, don't worry. You can watch it on my YouTube channel anytime you want. You can easily access my YouTube channel by either of two ways. Go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com. Look at the right side of the page directly below the orange donate button and the Patreon box and you will find it. Click the space, the small, make sure it's the small one. A small space rocket history leg logo in the upper left corner of the video. Do not click anywhere else, and you will be taken to my channel. If that doesn't work, you can search on Google using the term space rocket history on YouTube. When I did that, my channel was the second result. Make sure you subscribe and click on the notification bell. I also posted the link on my Patreon page, Facebook, and Twitter. Currently, there are two videos on the channel. Feel free to watch them. One was a SpaceX launch back in 2017 that Mrs. SRH and I enjoyed, and the other is a reminder for this event. Currently have 273 YouTube subscribers, so hopefully someone will show up for the live show. We will be taking questions that you sent in by email in advance. We will take some live chat questions if we have time. Then we will have the Tang Ceremony. Continuing with the announcements, our next episode should be released on or about November 3rd. If you would like to be notified by email when the new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 219 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive, and of course they're available on the homepage as well. If you are so inclined, my Twitter handle is working again, and it is the same as it used to be, at Space Rocket Hist, and you can follow on Facebook if you like. You can also keep up with me on patreon.com slash space rocket history, where in addition to the episodes, I post some extra things. Okay, I had a few afterthoughts. I want to apologize for mispronunciations and my voice. 
I got really sick early Monday morning and was throwing up so much, I think it damaged my throat or something because I had a lot of trouble getting through this episode without my voice cracking or fading out. So, sorry, you had to listen to that. We have the uh, Artemis launch coming up. It's now scheduled for November 14th. And I believe it will be at night, so it could be quite spectacular. Hope everything goes well. Sadly, we lost another Apollo astronaut on October 13th, Jim McDivitt, who commanded the Apollo 9 mission, testing the first complete set of equipment to go to the moon, died. McDivitt was also the commander of Gemini 4, where his best friend and colleague Ed White made the first U.S. spacewalk. McDivitt's photographs of White during the spacewalk became iconic images. McDivitt passed on a chance to land on the moon and instead became the space agency's program manager for five Apollo missions after the Apollo 11 moon landing. In his first flight in 1965, McDivitt reported seeing something out there about the shape of a beer can flying outside his Gemini spaceship. People called it a UFO, and McDivitt would later joke that he became a world-renowned UFO expert. Years later, he figured it was just a reflection of bolts in the window. Apollo 9, which orbited Earth and didn't go further, was one of the lesser-remembered space missions of NASA's program. In a 1999 oral history, McDivitt said that it didn't bother him that it was overlooked. He could see why they would, you know. It didn't land on the moon, and so it was hardly part of Apollo. But the lunar module was key to the whole program. Flying with Apollo 9 crewmates Rusty Swigert and David Scott, McDivitt's mission was the first in space test of the lightweight lunar lander nicknamed Spider. Their goal was to see if people could live in it, if it could dock in orbit, and something that became critical in Apollo 13, if the lunar module's engines could control the stack of the spacecraft which included the command module, which it could. Jim McDivitt was 93. If you would like more information on Jim, I did a brief biography on episode 178. And this information I just read to you came from NBC News. As far as this episode goes, we have completed all nine biographies and will move on next episode. I did not know, or I forgot, which is a lot of times the case, that Bill Pogue flew with the Thunderbirds. Now that it, that to me is very impressive. Those Thunderbirds are good. I saw them fly once at Pensacola. If you ever have a chance to see them in person, I highly recommend it. I also do want to apologize for the quality of some of the clips that were scratchy. The scratchy ones were actually coming from outer space, so 
that that's a communications issue. All right, it's time for the Tang ceremony. If you have Tang, go ahead and get it now. Press the pause button. We will wait. Okay, we are back. And this time we have special guests. We have grandson Josh and grandson Zach. Hi. And Mrs. SRH. Hi, everyone. Say hi, Josh. Hey. And we're going to do the tang ceremony right quick here. Let me first open up the tang. Right, everybody has a cup, and we do have water in advance. And I'm gonna dip some of this delicious tang into everybody's cup. There's one, and you take that cup, Zach, and then Josh, take that cup, and Miss SRA, take that cup, and I'll take this cup. And then, what are we gonna do? We're going to stir it up, stir it up. All right. Mine's stirred up good. This is to 400 episodes. Refreshing. Okay. Thanks, Pebble. <laughs> All right. Thank you for coming over, boys. We appreciate it. Okay, moving along. Over the past fortnight, we received several donations and pledges. I would like to thank Marco M. from California, who donated at the Artemis level and earned a space communication dish emoji. Mighty impressive. Thank you, Marco. Tom D. from Denver, Colorado, donated at the Starship level. Robert M. from San Antonio, Texas, sent in another donation and moved to the shuttle level. Dwayne H. from Elkhorn, Wisconsin, donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Andre I. from the Torrid Plains of Romania increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. John B. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Alex S. from the Netherlands pledged on Patreon and donated at the Gemini level. Our total Patreon donors have reached 246 with a goal of 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 356 with a overall goal of 500 for the year. So, especially for those who have never supported the podcast, if you are enjoying this podcast that's been running now for almost nine and two-thirds years without commercial interruptions and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or if you'd like, you can donate by mail, which works for me. Please use my permanent address, 
just send me an email, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, and I will give you my permanent address. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. Isn't it incredible? We are at 400 episodes. We thank you, fans, for it is truly fantastic. (laughs) Now, don't forget about the live SRH Q&A on YouTube. That's Friday, October 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Now for our drawing. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Jacob Berkman. Jacob Berkman, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 356 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, ABC Good Morning America, NBC News, Skylab, America Space Station by David Shaler, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, The Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for episode 400. I'll try to have episode 401 posted on or before November 3rd. Don't forget the YouTube 400th episode celebration on Friday, October 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern. See you there. So long for now.